Take two. It's Kandashow's okay. Beatle Revolution. One, two, three, four. On iHeartRadio. Beatles Revolution number 42. Thanks for joining us. Wherever podcasts are, I was going to say sold, but given away on the iHeartRadio app, on iTunes, wherever you find it. Thanks, fellow Beatle fans. Um, I don't really have tribute bands on. It's not my thing. I think it's great to play Beatles live, but tribute bands are their own world, you know, whether it's Genesis or Beatles. The one reason I'll talk to Jimmy Vivino and Will Lee for the guys in the Fab Faux is that they just play Beatles music. They're established musicians playing Beatles music at the highest level. These guys are on every album you could think of. But there's a young band that's out there that I've been trying to get on the show for a long, long time on the air at Q1043 and here on the podcast. And the audience, you guys were the first ones to turn me on to them because they're YouTube sensations. They're all over the internet, Facebook and YouTube, because they play Beatles songs in the New York City subway stations and their harmonies are amazing. Twin brothers, and they call themselves Black Rabbit, B-L-A-C, Rabbit. And the one thing that most tribute bands can't do well and that's sing harmonies. You can play, you can dress up, and the harmonies are good, but the difference between Beatles and everybody else is the harmonies are just absolutely amazing. Now, they had three harmonies of John, Paul, and George, but these two guys do it, and because they're brothers and twins, the sound, their quality of their singing is amazing. They have their original music, but as an original band starting out, you need a hook, and their hook is... They're fantastic at singing Beatles songs. So how do two teenage African-Americans from far Rockaway, Queens, how do you become Beatles fans? That's what we're going to find out in this episode of Ken Dashow's Beatles Revolution. Say hi to Black Rabbit, to Amiri and Raheem hey Taylor. Thank you so much for coming up, guys. No problem. Thank you. I've seen you all over Facebook, you guys. That, that's the videos, the YouTube videos of you guys playing in the subway. is unbelievable. Thank you. So. You guys are twins? Oh, yes, we are twins. Okay, so you're twins and you're from Far Rockaway? Yep. The planet of Far Rockaway. Yeah, it is its own planet, isn't it? Yeah. It's like so far out. Yeah. Yeah. It's like I, the urban suburbs out there. <laughs> yeah, the urban suburbs. Well said, yeah. I keep that one. Far Rockaway Queens. And just to give you guys an example of how amazing they sound, play a little Beatles for us, if you would. Oh yeah, I tell you something. I think you'll understand. Brilliant, 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 brilliant. The harmonies. That's what I'm talking about. When people do covers of Beatles and they try to get the music right or the drum fill. No, the Beatles, it's the harmonies. And as my wife always says, the Bee Gees, when you're siblings, the harmonies are amazing. That's what's incredible to me about Crosby Stills and Nash or John Paul and George. These are three strangers who sang one note in three parts. And you guys just have that natural, natural sound. So the $64 question is, how did two African-American kids, twins in Far Rockaway, fall in love with the Beatles? They had a grandmother who really loved uh, Help and Hard Day's Night, the movies, yeah, and, the rec and had a few of the Beatles records laying around at home. And then on our 16th birthday... She drilled it even more into our heads by getting us the Beatles rock band um, for the <laughs> Xbox. Yep. We like mastered the songs on the video game, decided to teach ourselves the guitars, and 
just became we were obsessed with the songs. We Back obs- in the USSR was I got obsessed with Back <laughs> in the USSR. That was my favorite one. Were you obsessed with music before the Beatles? Yeah, we we were singing Disney musical songs when we were young, like uh, Aladdin and stuff like that. And the Beatles were always kind of like played in the background. But then once we were like in high school, that's when we like started paying attention, like listening to them and picking it apart, right, and finding out what was inside the songs. That's what yeah. so many people have come through here have told us. For everybody from the biggest artists to Randy Bachman to you guys is Randy always said. Did you ever have a formal musical education? He said, "Yeah, I bought Beatle records." And he <laughs> yeah. said he'd sit with his with a little record player and a guitar and a pen and a paper and try to pull apart, you know, it pull the jigsaw puzzle apart and see how the pieces fit. He said, "That's how I learned to write a song. This comes here, that goes there." Okay, don't. He said, "No, who's it? Don McLean was yeah. up here and said every word." He said, "John Lennon would tell you the same thing. Every word counts. If you're writing a song." Every line counts. It's not just a line to get to the chorus. Yep. Everything counts. He goes, that's how I learned songwriting. Yep. I believe that um, we're, we actually have our, yeah, our own original music that we've been writing. And definitely I, we've been taking a lot of lessons melodically from the Beatles. Like, it's definitely the best first band to go to, in my <laughs> Subtle opinion. Subtle nuances in the yeah. changes in the chord progressions. It's like it's not like modern music where it's kind of like a rush to the chorus. I feel like some modern music, like we rush to the chorus, but the re- the whole song is like the whole song with the Beatles. It's always like intriguing, and you can listen to it more than once and just pick out parts that you never. But so simple really at the about. same time. Yeah, so simple so at the same time. It's like. It's it's easy for someone to grasp. Like, um, give me an example. Um, let's see, "Love Me Do," which happens to have like, you know, three chords throughout the song, but the harmonies, the way they put together the harmonies, is really what like pulls you in. But what I didn't know that we were talking about beforehand it was your your grandfather and your uncle were jazz musicians, yeah. art jazz musicians. Yeah. Who are they? Um, Gerald and Lewis Hayes. Amazing uh, One's players. a jazz drummer and one's a saxophone player. Wow. Hey, Mark Rivera, you listening to this? Uh, and Mark's kind of like my music director for Breakfast of the Beatles. When we do it live, saxophone player with Billy and Ringo's music director. And so there was always music around your house growing up? Yeah. Yeah, we always, there was jazz music and a mixture of classic rock and pop. Yeah, and we also, uh, you know, just listened to a lot of classical. Our grandparents listened to classical and Disney um we also listened to like Disney music as well and uh, yeah. sang that a lot. I'm a bit, you know, I'm, I love classical. I love jazz. And I, to me, it's, I just, people say, what kind of music do you like? And my answer is always, I like great music. Yeah. I don't care if it was recorded in the 1600s or this morning. Yeah, you know? Exactly. Is it great? Is it interesting? Does it yeah. move me? Nope. And if it's not, then it's just, it lays there for me. Mm. Yep. True, true. We tend, I, I tend to like, gravitate towards anything with like a really strong melody like anything that's like you hear it and you can almost instantly sing it back to yourself and remember yeah but you guys the thing is about just like the beatles harmonies crosby stills and nash think of bands with great harmonies you guys just ate you can sing your asses off you have beautiful voices thanks thank you but that said there's just a knack to being able to sing perfect harmonies we had producer andrew we had danny lane up here who's started wings with paul they had a natural harmony together when they sang it's what paul was looking for john and paul and george never had any musical training 
you listen to a song like Because. How did they know how to do that? How yeah. how do you figure it out? Yeah, you you can learn it for four years, or you can just have it in your head the way you guys sing harmonies. Yeah, I I, I like they almost like through the records they listen to when they were young. I almost get this feeling that they were like channeling that they were channeling some sort of like subconscious level thing where they didn't really need the training. Yeah, they, I but wonder. they knew. But they yeah. knew. They, I mean, they trained their ears. It was more about training their ears than it was about training themselves, like, on any particular instrument or any particular vocal. And then, like, even hearing that because it's, like, a Beethoven, I think the chords are, like, a Beethoven song backwards or something like that. Yeah. 100% Moonlight yeah. Sonata. Yeah, yeah, John took that for uh, the song Love. It's wow. So genius. Yeah, it just so let me rewrite Moonlight Sonata and yeah. become Love. That's amazing. That's, <laughs> who thinks of that? You know. Like, yeah, John Lennon does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know the story about Paul McCartney running around with Yesterday, and he just had the melody. Scrambled eggs. You know that. Yeah. yeah. Scrambled eggs. How I love your legs. Something yeah. like that. <laughs> Days on end until John Lennon says, "Will you put some words to that?" <laughs> He's like, "Is that mine?" Because he asked everybody, "Is that mine?" He asked George Martin, "Is that a classical piece or is that mine?" Because it just comes to you. You don't know, am I channeling Haydn? Is that a Mozart piano concerto? Is that mine? And, you know, George Martin said, just just write some words well, to well, it. Well, th there's that great story about Prince and Journey. Yes. Before Prince released Purple Rain, he called up the keyboard player from Journey, Jonathan Cain, and he made him listen to, I guess, the final mix or whatever. And he wow. said, the end of this, I might have ripped off from your song Faithfully. So oh, he calls, oh, wow. he, he says, I'll change it if you want. I might have ripped you off. Just please let me know. Oh, wow. And it's, <laughs> it's that, that whoa, whoa part. Both of the songs, they mm. kind of end with that. So I think they're the same chords. Pretty but, similar? Yeah, they're, or similar at least. Yeah. The and song John, Purple Rain. The song Purple the, um, Rain, yeah. Okay, yeah. But that's a really classy thing to yeah, do. Really? Yeah, that's yeah. unheard of almost. We do, Amir and I do yeah. that all the time. I have a, a song recognizing app on my oh, okay. iPad Smart. now to where, like, <laughs> if I think a song I'm writing sounds like uh, another song, I sing it into there and try to get those songs to pull up online. We even even from the darkest with... depth, even if it's like some obscure, like, Japanese song or something, <laughs> whatever. We do it, we even do it with each other. Like, you know, when when we write songs separately, sometimes our melodies might overlap on certain songs. We'll be like, did, did you use that one? Yeah, right, no. <laughs> but, you know, yeah. it, what everybody has always said to us, to me and producer Andrew, there are 12 notes. And, it's, you know, the difference between stealing and inspiring is everyone said, have you changed it? Did you change it enough? Randy Bachman, with BTO, wrote this song, Let It Ride. Dun, da, da, dun, da, 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 dun, da, da, dun. Uh, for this chord change that he heard from some jazz thing that he mm. made into a rock beat as opposed to like a 5-4 time, he's on tour with the Doobie Brothers, and the next song wow. the Doobie Brothers come out with is dun, da, 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 dun, da, da, uh, without love, you know, where would you be now? Long train running. Oh, and yeah. he said, oh yeah, they got those chords from me. He goes, but I never thought of it as stealing because they, they heard my chords and they used those chords in a different way, in a different song. Yeah, they're the same chords, but how many chords are there? As long as you didn't play it exactly and use the same phrasing and everything, yeah, then it's cool because we all go back and we talk about classical. Every time 
you know, they would they would say like a um, you know a, a bohemian dance or a folk dance, or they would call it. It was just what they heard in the town where they were in. And so, hey, I love that melody. I'm going to make that into a piano concerto mm. and just call it uh, the Polovetsian dances or something like yeah. that. And you yeah. just name it, and there was no copyright yeah, back every, in those days. Everything cool. is kind of a remix. Right, but as long as you change yeah, it. As long somehow. as you're not yeah. like playing some note for note. Right. Did you guys write songs before you got into the Beatles? Uh, a little bit, but I think I, we used like... to hum out things, but... I think yeah, definitely like a year or two with the Beatles, like was was what we needed to like. You went to Beatles college, college first. Right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Beatles, Beatles University, University for songwriting. Everybody <laughs> uses that. You're like the tenth yeah. person who's used that phrase, right, Andrew? Beatles University. Maybe I ripped that off from somebody. <laughs> How old are you now? How old are you guys? We're twenty three. Twenty three. When did you first start? When did you play out and first like try this? Um. We were like 16 when we first started. But um, I think the first gig that we ever played, we were 18. I think it was graduation year. Where'd you go to school? Um, Manhattan Free School, which is like a democratic free school. You can go on a whole other tangent about that. It's it's a very weird school where kids are able to pretty much uh, pursue whatever they want in learning and kind of set their own rules so we built a music we built a music studio using that freedom we built a music studio in the at in the attic of our school and uh we just locked ourselves up there (laughs) all day smart smart that then that was the right school for you because you needed the room to do that Yep. But how's your geometry? Though? <laughs> uh, <laughs> terrible, very bad. <laughs> even, but it's funny because even the public schoolers I know don't even remember a thing about geometry. I had a panic attack. I had a panic attack out. when you said geometry. <laughs> I was like, oh shit! I'm gonna quiz I almost didn't. On... I almost didn't get it out of my mouth because I was having a panic attack <laughs> thinking about it. So I, you know, I was like the English major who's great at writing and reading and writing essays, and my yeah. math sucked. I could just get by. So I've been in radio my whole life because I love, you know, performing. I've written plays and acting and stand-up comedy. What do you do in radio? Everything's math. Every minute, every day is adding, subtracting. Where do the commercials go? How do you do it? I'm like, damn it, you can't get away from this thing. <laughs> it's all math. No matter what you do, it's math. called math. It's just... It's just this I left school to get out of math. <laughs> now I'm back in it. Right. Black Rabbit with me, Amiri and Raheem Taylor. It's the harmonies. It's all about the harmonies. Everybody tries to play the music, right? And that's hard to do, but if you get that, that's good. But these Beatle tribute bands, how are the harmonies? Because if you can't sing them right, they die. The songs just lay there like a locks. You yeah, know, the harmonies are such an important part. I feel like that's where they, they almost like structure their songs around harmony and around the melody. Because like, that just it punches through. The harmonies really like add a potency to the melody. Like a song like If I Fell, for example, exactly. where you can't even, um, which I really love that song, by the way. I find it interesting because you can't even tell which one is the melody. I mean, by doing research, I found out that the the bottom is actually the melody. John came up with that part first, but... It's almost as if, like, you could hear any yeah, of the three either, parts. Either and one. Just, <laughs> oh, two. Two. Yeah, yeah it's two. Of the two parts and think that it's 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 what John started out with, the framework of the song. And it seems so simple. You know, and like you mentioned classical music like Bach. You know, it sounds simple. Go and play it. Get this sheet music and try to play it. And you go, man, there's like 12 levels to this thing. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Andrew, in your band, 100,000, would have you, I love your singer. Your singer is a great voice. Do you ever spend time working on harmonies or melodic lines? There's a lot of, because I know you're recording a second album. Yeah, I mean, m most of the songs actually come from harmonies for us, even first. though they're very rhythmically like intense, but most of the time it's the melody first. And then as far as vocal harmonies, we'll, we'll work that out. Usually Rich, our singer, will kind of work those out as he's tracking the vocals, and then we'll figure who can sing what. Me, it's always the lower one. Right. And then we have a guitar player who, who can sing... The high, high one that Rich like blew out his voice to put in there, <laughs> oh, and wow. he'll sing that live. So, it, nice. and then the music mix. kind of follows the vocal harmony. The music follows the melody, um, usually the guitar, or sometimes like a little keyboards. But yeah, for me melody first. Yeah, even when it's the guitar, you know, it's what Randy Bachman. I always go back to him. He said, "Here's what I learned: the opening, the introduction, that's a hook." Yeah, the the first verse is a hook, the chorus is a hook, the, the counter eighth. melody is <laughs> a, hook. a hook, the middle eight is a different song and it's a hook. Oh yeah, and, it's a different song. You know, a chord, the B opening chord on Hard Day's Night. Yeah, it's just he like, pulled that apart. We did that live at the cutting room one day. You can't believe how much is in that chord. You know, there's a piano in there. Yeah, yeah. I never knew that. Yeah, until yeah he played yeah, it yeah, like because yeah, it just Paul sounds. And John playing, I think, like. At some F add nine chord yeah. on the piano with like the same a diminished time. seventh on yeah. it because <laughs> it just sounds like wham. Yeah. And then you, when you pull it apart, remember we played it live. I'm like, oh my god, it's yeah. like a symphony. Yeah, and there, and people have been trying to find that chord forever. I know that yeah. people have been trying to like a lot you of can't bands really try to replicate it on one instrument. No. honestly. Yeah. Randy cheated though. He's friends with Giles Martin when he was remastering it. Oh, and so he was yeah, at Abbey Road. He went put up Hard Day's Night. And, I, and he so like he got this secret puzzle, so he was able to like pick it apart. Oh, nice. Amiri and Raheem Taylor, my friends, Black Rabbit in in uh, the studio with me, talking Beatles and your own music. How much do you think your writing has changed as you've dug through like the Beatles catalog and learned how they write? I mean, it's been it's been pretty much like the framework. I think the framework of us as songwriters, like without the Beatles, probably wouldn't even be a thing but like i think like relating it back to like basing the music around harmony it's like it's a good way to start a song to base it around the harmony because chords are essentially that it's like harmony so if you if you start off with the basis of like basing your song around harmony then you're off to a good start and that's kind of like amiri and i we're like obsessed with harmonies. We'd yeah. add harmonies to like almost every melody. No kidding. It sounds so pretty, yeah. especially when you isolate it, when you're in like the vocal booth and you isolate just like the vocals singing two separate parts. It sounds amazing. It's hard. It's hard for me. It's funny because I had such a hard time like finding an answer, but like it feel like when you're writing songs, it's also a mixture of keeping those principles in mind, but also like, stream of consciousness like it kind of just like comes to you you know so like even though you're even though we can talk about like theory and form but when 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 you're writing a song right. it's, it's you're not, not analyzing you're not it. thinking about yeah. it right. like that yeah it yeah. just comes right and whenever whenever Miri and i have tried to sit, sit down and like let's write a song like it never <laughs> yeah. it never has yeah. the same level of yeah. like potency as like when you're just like it's 4 a.m and you're like 
in your right. boxers and you wake up in the middle of the night and you're like, whoa, Rod, check this out. Right. <laughs> I'm like, Mary, I'm sleeping. Andrew, what did, what did Randy Bachman said? You always have your songwriter's kit with you on the road. He said, which is a crayon and a McDonald's bag. Oh. <laughs> he, said, I, I, he said, I would say 80 to 90% of my songs have been written on a, with crayon on, on a food wrapper of that's some hilarious. sort. But, but it's just what you're saying. Like, yeah. that's when the song comes. Yeah. When you're half asleep, right? When Lenny Kravitz came in a few weeks yeah, ago. Yeah, Lenny was up here. Oh, wow. He, um, he just finished a new album that's coming out in a few months, and he said that he started writing it after waking up from a dream. <laughs> he had an idea, and just like in his bathrobe, shuffled over to the studio and started writing the record. And he said that's the album. Basically, what, came, what started with the dream. Such a great lesson to anyone who... Who's trying to do anything creative? Like, if you have an idea, you're not going to remember it later. You won't. Just forget what you're doing. Right. Forget ha forget sleeping, whatever, and just put it somewhere. There's a great songwriter, musician who loved the Beatles, Pat Denizio. May you rest in peace. He's a dear friend, the Smithereens. And one of their biggest hits, Behind the Wall of Sleep. Uh, he was coming back from a gig up in Rockland County. He lived in the East Village. And the song just came to him. And this is the before cell phones. This is pre-cell phone days, right? He doesn't have a tape recorder. He's stuck in traffic on the FDR drive. The traffic on the Triborough is hell. FDR is hell. So he's just singing it over and over to himself yeah, for yeah, 45 minutes. He doesn't forget right. it by the time yeah, he right. gets home because that's happened to me. Yeah. <laughs> Behind the wall of sleep. <laughs> Behind the wall. And he's writing it. And he's, I just, because if I, he said, I felt like if I stop singing it, it's going to leave. Like I'm holding something that's jumping in my hand yeah. and I can't like put a cage around <laughs> it. So I just like an idiot, I'm sitting there going, please God, move the traffic. Yeah. Yeah, hair like, Jay, please God, keep the traffic moving. So I could run home. I didn't even pee. I just ran home and ran. <laughs> I had I had a moment like that a few months ago when we were writing um we were trying to rewrite like the verse of this one song and I came up with something on the way home from we did a session that didn't go anywhere came home I had an idea I started singing it to myself and then I'm like well what would the next line be start singing that and then I forgot the first line oh <laughs> and then I park and I just I'm like, I'm going to sit in my car and I'm going to remember what the hell I was singing before. And then eventually I worked it out. Yeah, I worked it out what I was at least able to convince myself what, 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 what I was doing was. before. Whether it was or wasn't. Yeah. And then I was going to be able to go yeah. to sleep. Yeah, you can kind of get a sense <laughs> yeah. of your musical sensibilities right. and be like, all right. Work backwards. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. As I've always said, the amazing thing about these four guys from Liverpool, you know, to begin with... Close your eyes and I'll kiss you. Tomorrow I'll miss you. Two years later, turn off your mind, relax, and float downstream. This is not dying. Yeah. What band in two years changes their songwriting from this to that? It's insane. Yeah, it's amazing. I feel like that. I feel like most artists want a lot of artists long to to evolve like yes. the Beatles did. Like I think subconsciously writing most. Like most bands, most musicians, artists, they wanna they wanna evolve, but a lot of times um, artists get pigeonholed into whatever their kind of niche is. But that's what I love about so much about the Beatles is that they weren't afraid to be like, all right, we just made like three pop records, now let's 
now let's play some like broke pop. Let's do something <laughs> yeah. like with, yeah. let's put strings in and there. And not to mention the fact that I think the Beatles were like you uh, even in their early music in their early lyrical content you can tell kind of the cleverness oozing out of it like they were like they wanted to do something more almost right. but they're they, trying to keep it in the box just, they're keeping but... it in the box for now like you know i think yeah uh I, it was very clear by some of the interviews john was probably getting tired of writing songs like she loves you and like the jingle sometimes and and he wanted to you know Expand. Be more artsy, write about things that matter to him. And Every band like in that. the world would dream of writing pop hits that change the world. And these guys say, yeah, okay, well, we did that. Next. Yeah, yeah exactly. You know, we're in leather jackets and singing Little Richard stuff. Okay, done. Suits, A lot of bands pop retire, hits. Retire. All right, let's, we fired, they, remember they called them the mop tops? You yeah, know, yeah. so they fire the mop tops and now we get Rubber Soul and, and Revolver and Longer yeah. Hair and Cool. Then we fire the Love touring it. band by 66. We fire them. And we just go in the studio and become Sgt. Peppers. Then we fire them. And then we come up <laughs> Magical Mystery Tour. Then we get rid of that. And now we get to the White Album where we're just songwriters. They just wore so many different hats. <laughs> I love how many eras. I love, I love right. artists that also have like eras. Like you can yeah. tell. You're like, oh, yes. With Michael Jackson, like I'm like, that's the bad era. That's the yeah. thriller era. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and they're constantly just changing. That's how image. you keep going from Bob Dylan, you know, religious, not religious, you know, exactly. early folky, rocking out, you know. He... Exactly. You want to play a little bit? Yeah, sure. Okay, yeah. give us a little. Love, love me too. You know I love you. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. I see you. Just the way it's constructed, you see how the box is built. You see where everything goes. Yeah. And, you know, Paul said he was terrified. Do you know that story about when they were recording that? After a measure, John would play the harmonica. And George Martin says, no, what, the harmonica should come right on, overlap, right on yeah. overlap. Yeah. So he said, Paul, you sing Love Me Do. And Paul said, I've never sung the solo Love Me Do line ever all the times we played it live or rehearsed it wow. and the first time i'm going to sing it live is our first recording and he said to this day if you hear it i maybe you guys don't hear it he goes but i hear how nervous this kid was singing love me do i hear a bit of a tremble <laughs> you in do. his voice there yeah my favorite line of that when they were on ed sullivan and you know they're playing as the group and the big ballad is yesterday you know the most covered song in the history of the world and as he's about to go on stage at Ed Sullivan, and just before the curtains open, the stagehand says to him, says to Paul, you nervous? Paul goes, no. And the stagehand said, you should be. 70 million people are watching. And opens the curtain. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's cruel. Yeah, that's not, yeah, that's really. That's yeah, terrible to sure. do. To, yeah. That ain't fair to do to anybody. Yeah, yeah. So you guys are going out on the road. You're starting a tour. Yeah. Um, yeah, June 15th, our first show is at uh, Pawtucket, is in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, and then we're going all the way up to uh, Montreal and Toronto, and then we come back down to Atlanta and back to New York, and then we close the tour out at uh, Bowery Ballroom on uh, June 3rd. July 3rd? July 3rd. Yeah. So July, July 3rd, 3rd yeah. Bowery Ballroom, 
you know where we're all going to be, right? We're, we're all, the, the Breakfast with the Beatles fans, <laughs> are going to be at the Bowery Ballroom July 3rd. So it's going to be original material and Beatles? Yeah. We we always like to uh, mix it up, add a couple of extra Beatles songs towards the end of, um, end of the set. Cool. Have you been on a big tour before? Have you done a tour? No, this is no. our first, first tour. <laughs> okay, so... Words of advice from your Uncle Ken, not from me, but from other artists and producer Andrew, who's shooting this, knows the same thing. The goal of the tour is if not to make money, because hopefully you will, but you might very well not, and whatever your bus is could very well break down, and that'll cost more than it will to whatever you get. If you can get back from this tour and still talk to each other, if, you could, if you're still talking, it's a successful tour. If you could stand the sight of each other after even this short tour, it'll be fine. That's your goal. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Set that. Yeah, as my a brother goal. and I tend to butt heads. Uh, in, um, so that was my question to you. I mean, you're twins, right? So yeah, it's, yeah. it's you couldn't be closer and you couldn't aggravate each other more, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah definitely. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> With business decisions, songwriting, everything. It's all. Yeah. I mean, not always, but you know. Is one of you more like the business head and one more the music guy? Yeah, definitely. So, Raheem, you're the business guy. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Maybe a little <laughs> bit. Well, Miri actually helps uh, helps us get uh, organized for our our rehe rehearsing, recording stuff like that, and then I like along with our manager sometimes will handle um, booking and stuff like that. Yeah, he's he's the better negotiator. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, you look. Paul drove the bus, you know. Here's this band, the Quarrymen, having fun playing weekend gigs. Fifteen-year-old Paul McCartney comes in, and within a year, he fires the entire Quarrymen. He says to John, "It's you and me, Len. You got to go. Colin, you got to go. Here's my friend George. He'll come in. All right, Pete can stay. No, Pete's out. Okay. No, you know, it's like it just he just go go go. go. We're gonna do this. We're gonna do that. So that you, was all Paul's idea. He drove the bus. He had this vision. John had the vision of success. He wanted the success as much as Paul." But Paul was the guy who was just, let's do it, let's do it. When he threw Stuart out of the band, when he said to John Lennon, your friend Stu has to leave the band, he's not good enough. Because yeah. Paul was playing guitar, Stu was playing bass. Yep, yep. And John Lennon said to him, if Stu goes, I go. It's, he's my mate. And, he goes, and Paul just said, no, no, you stay. We write the songs, we're the band. Stu can always be your best friend. I'll learn to play the bass, and you play. And we just need two guitarists. And he just changed it and said... His best friend has to go, but you know he was right because yeah. he wasn't. And and Stu said, "Hey, I'm just doing this for fun. I want to paint. I'm an artist. Yeah, yeah he was yeah. an artist. I'm, you know, I'm not committed. I to don't this. think he took it personally. Right? No, he, he didn't. It was like, more okay. John. It was yeah. more of John's feelings that Paul had to consider than Stuart. Oh yeah, without a doubt, because Stuart was cool with it. He stayed, fell in love with Astrid. You know the story, and he's drawing and painting. But it's tough to come into somebody else's band." throw at everybody in his band <laughs> yeah exactly like you weren't <laughs> even a part of the original thing but like somehow right. you've now the center force i right. think paul was definitely like the secret leader of of the beatles in my opinion like as far as even towards the end of their career like when john I've, i feel like you could feel John's interest in the Beatles slowly fizzling a little bit. Without a doubt. And Paul definitely just like took the lead on I think everything. if Paul if Paul could have added his yeah. way, the Beatles might have continued for another decade. They never would have stopped. Yeah. yeah. Look what he did. He puts together another band. We just had uh Denny Lane and Denny Sywell of Wings, and as I said, he could have asked anybody in England to go play in his band, Eric Clapton and, and Steve Winwood. Yeah. No, no. I'm just going to get a band. I'm going to find you guys. We're going to rent a bus, and we start from scratch, and I'll rebuild it, and here we are 
touring stadiums with new music again. I just restarted another band. I can do it. Not only is it one in a hundred million to do it once, I'll do it twice. Listen, it was John's band in every way, and Paul knew it. But he also knew that's part of, like, they resented Paul always being about go, 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 do, do, do. You know, and I understand you resented it. And there's always that guy in that's, the band. That's there's that's raw. That that's guy. raw for. I feel like yeah, in the, in, I mean, in our band. <laughs> I, that story. Every go, go, go guy. Mick Jagger in the Stones, Pete Townsend in the Who, Lars in Metallica. Yeah. There has to be that guy who says your house burned down. That sucks. Come on, the bus is leaving at ten. Yeah. <laughs> Somebody has to be that guy yeah, yeah. in a biz in a business, whether it's a candy store. Or a restaurant or a band. Somebody's got to be the guy like, yeah, that's that. Okay, wow, you got divorced. I'm so sorry, dude. Get on the bus. Let's go. Yeah. Because it's this is work. This is what we do. Yep. It's not always pleasant. You're the most hated guy in the band. <laughs> There's, no, but, okay, so I'll, I'll share one story with you. Uh, Gary Wright, who Dreamweaver, who's good friends with George Harrison. And the, Paul did something that was like a, a British stamp, had a painting. And George was complaining to Gary about it, like, you know, his ego and the lifelong pursuit of self-glorification and going on in this. And I said to Gary, were you in Friar Park with George in London, like, when he told you this? He said, yeah. I said, in which of the 32 rooms of the estate were you sitting in when he complained about Paul McCartney? Or were you in the award-winning Victorian yeah, Garden exactly. or in the yep. Swan Pond? Yep. yep, yep. And Gary looked at me funny and went, no, duly noted. I know, I know. Like, yeah, George, yeah, yeah. I know it drove you crazy because you was always go, go, go. But if you think you have an estate that's bigger than Windsor Castle without Paul, yeah. you're nuts. Yeah, exactly. You're nuts. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It wasn't going to happen. Sure. Yeah. You know, and that was Brian, Brian Epstein. You need that manager. We've talked about that. How did you find your manager? Um, we actually met him through our um, former manager, who is at, who is actually they just happened to be friends, and we were playing a show in Bushwick, and uh, he saw us. Um, we basically started talking from there. We started recording a couple tracks at his house, and then things developed, and yeah, now we're here. You guys sound fantastic. We were talking before about John Lennon. How? What were you telling me about? You felt about John Lennon's writing that it was very. Oh yeah, is it, it spiritual? Has, or? It has soul. Like he, his voice is almost haunting. His the, the presence that he has for, um, on his vocals are really uh, touching and relatable, and um, and that he's not like a he's not like a super technically skilled guitar player or anything but that he just he writes from he writes from the depths of his soul from his heart and i can feel that in like almost every single song yeah. he's written whereas like paul to me is like more of the like technically proficient musician who like just and and that, and, that, and but that's why they're so great as like a songwriting duo i think because they both have two different um, very similar, but also worlds apart, uniquely different approaches to like songwriting as well. Like I think I can feel it like in their music and even in their it's like reflective in their personalities. Yeah, and then you think about Paul writing something like Eleanor Rigby or Yesterday, which is so heartfelt or touching, or for no one. Yeah, yeah exactly. you know, and John can just knock out a hit whenever he wants to. Even like All You Need Is Love. Yeah, exactly. You know, it changes the world. They could both do oh, either exactly. one. Yeah. Raheem and Amiri Taylor with us, Black Rabbit. Just absolutely amazing work, guys. And you can find out everything at blackrabbit.com. No K, 
blacrabbit.com. Find their tour dates, and we will be there July 3rd, Bowery Ballroom, to cheer these guys on. Thank you for coming up. Thanks so much. Thank you.